Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Adam Rappaport. In today's special cold weather episode, we'll be talking comfort food. A little later on, we'll be joined by bartender mixologist Damon Bolte. But up now is food director Carla Lolly Music. Welcome aboard, Carla. How you doing? I'm good. I'm cold and I want, I want warm food. What I'm always amazed at is braising is one of the easiest, most delicious things you can do, but it's also something that, I don't know, are people intimidated by it? Do they not understand the basic concepts? What's your take on teaching people how to braise? I think people do like to cook low and slow and are generally into the idea of getting something going and then walking away from it, but people make mistakes when it comes to braising. They need, You need a little bit of hands-on time at the beginning for it to really pay off at the end. Yes. People want to skip it, and boiled meat? No, that's mm. not what we're making here. You got to start you got to like give some care and attention at the beginning then you can put in the oven and walk away and later you will have something delicious all right let's start with the meat the first thing you want to do is you want to buy the right cut of meat so and you want something actually that has a lot of fat and connective tissue if you will terrible to say like collagen you (laughs) know Mm. but (laughs) that is what makes braised you know the meats that are right for braising that's what holds them together so like your your shanks and oso buco like a veal shank lamb shank, even beef shank. So those things that are not delicious cook quickly generally are very delicious when you cook them low and slow. Yeah. And I think what's great about uh, braising meats, like I said, short ribs, brisket, uh, you know, pork shoulder. Um, a lot of these meats were the ones that, that they used to be really cheap before right. they came, became a little bit trendier, like short ribs. Um, you know, the, the, these are not the fillets and ribeyes and porterhouses of the world. Um, but if you treat them right, they just yield so much flavor and depth and just they're just fall apart tender. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you buy the right cut and, you know, go to your butcher or, or Whole Foods or wherever and say, you know, I want some for four to six people. And they give you a big hunk. All right. First of all, you want a nice big sort of pot, a heavy bottom pot, whether it's a cruse or a stock pot, correct? Yeah, if you don't have one, now is the chance. Salt it, let it sit for a while. Tons of salt, tons of pepper. And then sear the meat. Even if it's a big pork shoulder or full brisket, get it nicely browned on all sides. You don't want to blacken, but you want that good caramelly brown color. And that's that's where the flavor comes from, the, the Maillard reaction, as they say. It is the Maillard reaction. Yeah, uh, I think you got to keep turning it as well. There's fatty sides and even the bone, but just take time with it. If it's a giant lamb shank, you're going to have to maneuver it a little bit and keep it going and angle it. You, you said drain off a little of that. It that depends. Fat, I fat. did some short ribs yesterday, and there was just if I had kept going with the amount of fat that they rendered, it would have been been greasy. Too much. So eyeball it. Yeah, I poured it off until it was again like back to sort of a thin coating on the bottom of the pan. And then to that, you're adding your quote unquote aromatics. Um, yeah, your basic set is going to be your onion, your carrot, your celery. That's sort of classic. But if you have only onion or only carrot, just do that. You can also do nothing and put the meat in and have a good stock or even water, yeah. and you'll still get good results. I actually got great advice from Dan Barber, the chef at Blue Hill here in New York, uh, several years ago about braising. Is like go heavy with the vegetables. Like get, use a lot of vegetables, and then when you add them to that pot with the rendered fat, really caramelize it. Yeah. Like this 20 minutes, half hour to coax out all that sugar and flavor, just like you did with browning the meat. And that's going to give you a depth of flavor to the braise that you might not otherwise have. And, and, you know, if you have a great stock of beef stock or vegetable stock or, I mean, beef or chicken stock, great. But if you don't, that browned meat and those caramelized vegetables are going to add that depth that you might not otherwise achieve. I believe it was Mario Batali who once said, brown food tastes good. (laughs) I do not know that. Thank you, Mario. All right, so you get your. All right, so you, you brown your meat, you take it out, you're letting it rest, you caramelize all those vegetables for, like I said, could be 20 minutes or half hour yeah. even, uh, and then you put the meat 
back in the pot. Well, yeah. oh, I actually wait. like before then, I would, if you're going to add any spices mm-hmm. or other seasoning, Such I as? like uh, bay leaf, some coriander seed, anise, fennel, mm, you yeah. know, the cinnamon stick if wow. you're feeling crazy. Yeah. I would put them in at the end of that vegetable cooking time, not from the beginning because they'll burn, but just enough to get them into the fat and yep. bloom them a little bit. It'll smell really great. All right. You brown the meat, whether it's pork, veal, beef, whatever. Saute the aromatics. Put the meat back in. With on top. any of the stuff that has dripped onto that plate. And then it's time for the liquid. You had mentioned whether it's water, whether it's stock, whether it's wine. What's your policy? I think what you said is true. If you have really great vegetables and uh, not great stock, I would use water. I think you're better off with the flavors of the meat and water than you are with a not great stock. I had cooked some grains on Saturday, Mm. and I used some of the grain cooking liquid as my liquid in the short ribs, and that was very delicious. But that's, I mean, that's kind of, I think, yeah, you can get creative with the liquids. Like I said, you have a great cut of meat, you've got vegetables, you have salt, you have that caramely going on, whether it's water or some sort of box chicken stock, I'm always going to go probably half liquid with, with either beer or wine. Well, you raise a really important point, which is the acidity point that we're... Interesting. Yeah. Yes. I think wine, tomato, um, beer, a little cider vinegar, even sherry vinegar, a little bit of that is a really nice thing to add to the braise. Yeah. Otherwise, it's too kind of round and fatty almost. Yeah. It's not that it won't be delicious, but it's just so rich and so fatty that somehow the acidity makes all those other flavors more delicious. Throw it in the oven at 300? I would say 350. Really? Yeah. It depends on the oven. You also don't have to put it in the oven. You could do the whole thing stovetop. Fortunately, my name is higher than Carlos on the masthead. I'm going to say you're (laughs) wrong. Why 350? That's too high. I think the key is... Your mm-hmm. oven might say 350. The key is that while that, you should check it after half an hour, right? 300, mm-hmm. says Adam. Uh, open the lid up. You want to see some bubbles, but if it's boiling rapidly and like big giant bubbles, it's, it's too going too hot. All right. So say somewhere in the 300 to 3, we'll call it 325. And literally in the oven, I lower rack and three hours later, that's good. Your house, A, your house is going to smell amazing. True. And you're going to open it up and it's going to be delicious. And it, I mean, it. there is not a lot. It's not complicated. It's not a lot of work. Like yeah, you and people said, worry about how long is it going to take. You just stick a fork in there. Exactly. All right. Now, like I said, I, I love to braise. I think I'm pretty good at it. One thing I'm terrible at is making soup. I made soup. I, we've talked about this. I made soup last night and it just sucked. I'm sorry to use that word, but it just, it was so watery. And like my mom, my mom is like, she did not, is not part of this whole sort of fancy gourmet hipster artisanal food revolution. But anytime she makes soup, it's so, so good. And I don't know what her like old school tricks are, like whether it's just salt or what, but it, I feel like I never, I, I, I'm always missing that concentrated flavor. Well, I really believe in starting with a lot of veg, like a, another mixture of carrot, onion, garlic, celery, um, plenty of olive oil. I think when you eat out and you have mm-hmm. delicious soup and you look at it, it's got a lot of fat in it too. So you don't, if, you, if you're making like a lentil and kale soup, you're not going to have the big hunk of meat that's giving off delicious meaty flavors the whole time. You have to have that fat. And I like to add veg sort of towards the end too. So if you make mm. something that has greens in it and you use a really generous amount, that flavor will flavor the soup so much at the end too. Or the beginning the beginning vegetables, the sofrito, if you cook the, that down really soft, 
Um, in our soup primer, we say to you know keep it covered, sweat them until they're basically disintegrating. Yeah, and you said covered actually. So you've got your onions, celery, and carrots all minced up on the pan with the olive oil and a little yeah. salt. You say cover that and just you cook can cover it down. That Twenty-five minutes, not getting a ton of dark color, although yeah. you could, um, but really until the vegetables just g- give it up, like yeah. they have nothing left. They're falling apart. So can you make, say I'm making lentil soup. Can I make a good lentil, a flavorful lentil soup without any sort of like porky products in there? I believe you can. You can. Do you have a Parmesan rind? Ooh, see, that's another secret trick. Always add a Parmesan rind to imbue imbue with flavor. And the spices too, I think, are key. Really? Yeah. Such as? Mm, It depends. What are we making? Lentil soup? Yeah. I would add cumin. I would add bay leaf. I would add... Maybe some fennel. Interesting. All right. All right. And then what about? The, I always, like I said, I think I've, I've I've erred on the side of getting too much liquid, perhaps, to the stuff. Yeah, but in if the your pot. soup is liquidy, just keep cooking it because the liquid will evaporate. Evaporate. Top off. Yes. Or what we also talk about in our soup primer is like make a good chicken stock. There is no substitute for homemade chicken stock. There is isn't. I made one yesterday. Pressure cooker. 35 minutes. Carla loves the pressure cooker. Also featured in our March issue of Bon Appetit. Yeah, it seems like if you have a good quality, rich chicken stock with the way you brown the bones and the veg and all that stuff, you can kind of put anything with it. It's going to still taste pretty good, right? Yeah. Even a, even a not great chicken stock will make everything taste better. All right. So we got soup. We got braises. What about like mac and cheese and pasty casseroles and that sort of stuff? Are you are you a big sort of casserole? I know person? it's important to people, but they're not really in my wheelhouse. I gotta say, really? yeah. I make a homemade mac and cheese from Ina Garten's recipe from back in the day, and Ina rules. And I mean, what am I? What am I? TV heroes. Um, there's something about making people homemade mac and cheese that they just go bananas for. When friends come over and yeah. you bring out the big tray with the crispy breadcrumbs on top. Yeah. People go nuts for it. When you, the thing is, when you make mac and cheese, it's kind of horrifying. When well, you think it's like, I it, think it's most delicious before it goes in the oven. I think that's my problem. Like really? when you've you have the pasta, you've coated it with the cheese sauce. Basically, that's where I would like to stop. Because you are making cheese sauce. You're making this crazy <laughs> bechamel. Like you've got a quart of milk, like a pound and a half of cheese. Yeah. Your nutmeg. You brown. You do a little sort of a roux sort of situation with the flour. Um, you're like, oh my God, that's insane. And then you pour it all in there and it's just like a swimming in there. And you're always, what's interesting about mac and cheese, one important thing to m- keep in mind is that when you blend the mostly cooked pasta with this cheese sauce, um, you always think like, oh my God, that's way too much cheese sauce. But it's amazing when it bakes, how much the pasta absorbs it and sort of evaporates. It's, it's going to pull together. It's not going to be soupy by the time that comes out of the oven. Totally. You have to overcompensate for what m- mostly happens, which is that it gets dried out and gummy. Yeah, and you don't want that. You don't that. want that. So, um, and yeah. you have to really undercook your pasta. Yeah, if a pasta calls for 10 minutes, you're doing penne, cook it for what, seven minutes? Before? More like five or six. We just developed uh, a great mac and cheese for the website as well, and we backed off to five minutes. Wow. Yeah. Well, all right, so we, we got soup, we got braises, we got mac and cheese. What about dessert? Is the dessert, dessert count as comfort food? I think for a lot of people it does. I think this is, you know, brownie season chocolate chip cookie, something warm and sweet smelling that's coming out of the oven is going to make people happy too. What about bread pudding? That, that to me strikes me as a that's like a, the casserole of the dessert world. Yeah, bread pudding for sure. Chocolate you, bread pudding. Do you make that ever? 
Um, that's my mom's thing. So there really? are certain things that my mom makes that I wouldn't dare because it would never be as delicious. So wait, how does she, what, do you know what her technique is? She actually wrote a book uh, called Ooh. Yesterday's Bread really? that had an entire section on bread pudding. Do tell. Uh, we got really into chocolate bread at one point. There was a, you know, those like loaves, it's like chocolate babka, but without the vanilla uh-huh. part of the bob- babka. It's just Where? chocolate bread. She made that or you'd go out and buy that? No, she, w- she would buy the chocolate loaf. And then, you know, you basically just make creme anglaise. You just make a custard. And then you pour that over bread. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Press it down and put it in the oven. And it comes out hot and gooey and delicious. I'm one of those guys, if I see bread pudding on a menu at a restaurant, I'm ordering the bread pudding. Is that right? Well, as long as it doesn't have raisins. Yeah. Can't have raisins. No surprise raisins, for sure. What are we going to do? this? We're going to make ourselves some beautifully braised pork roast or something. A soup of some sort. All for that. Kale and lentil soup. That's my Sunday thing. All right. I like that. And we have a great macaroni and cheese recipe up right now on bonappetit.com. Kind it's of like called BA's Best Mac and Cheese. BA's Best Mac and Cheese. All right. Bonappetit.com. And then finally, bread pudding. Carla's mom's bread pudding. Can we get that recipe on the bonappetit.com? Why to- isn't it? Totally. All right. Well, we'll, we'll tune in, I would say, in a few weeks, listeners, and check out Carla's. We're gonna, I think we have to call it Carla's mom's chocolate bread pudding. Yesterday's bread. Yesterday's bread. All right. Well, thank you so much, Carl Lally Music, food director here at Bon Appetit. And coming up, we have Damon Bolte, bartender mixologist of Prime Meats and the soon-to-open Grand Army in Brooklyn, New York. All right. We here at Bon Appetit, we're, we're, we're lucky to get a lot of very kind correspondence via email or regular mail or Twitter, Instagram, all that stuff. But, you know, there are some letters that are not so nice. And joining us today is senior editor Julia Kramer to read a recent one. It's all yours, Julia. Okay. Dear Bon Appetit, I looked for an email to write directly to Adam Rappaport, but I'm sure he can't be bothered with people that don't love his magazine. As a former caterer and a cooking teacher, I know what people want to cook, and you are not providing it. There's no more personal touch in your magazine, and all the recipes are geared to dieting metrosexuals who live in Manhattan. If I see one more recipe for kale or pickled something, I'll puke. My classes are full of people who say they are canceling or not renewing their subscriptions. It used to be my greatest pleasure to receive my latest copy in the mail. You had recipes that made my mouth water, and I couldn't wait to try them. All lost. It's become a chopped up mess with diet food. Sadly, discontinue my subscription. I've just thrown away your mag in the recycle for the third month without finishing it. I buy a subscription for a friend in Maine for Christmas each year, not that you celebrate it in your magazine, and I will not renew hers when it runs out. I'm sure you will not have the nerve to send this message to your editor. I think Bon Appetit as a magazine over the decades has always been a magazine that chronicles what's going on in the world of food at that moment. Uh, you know, it's not a magazine about classics or French cooking. It's like where America's at right now. And I, for better or worse, we are kind of having a healthy moment. And, and there is a lot of kale and quinoa and frica and all that stuff. As someone who reads a lot of the letters that we get from readers into the RSVP inbox, she hits on some themes that I think are shared among some of the the older readers. I think a lot of it ultimately comes down to a matter of taste. There's, I like this sort of food. You're doing more of that food. And like, you can argue with someone how, with how they deliver a message. You can't argue with their taste. You know, like if they don't like it, they don't like it. You know, I don't read every single letter, but I, I, I certainly, I, I think we're, where as an editor, 
Um, you have to be mindful if there's a consensus. Um, but yeah, I, I know I appreciate that people reach out to us. Yeah, I love the letters. Keep them coming. And the easiest way to contact us is to send us an email at askba at bonappetit.com. Or if you're the old-fashioned type, you can write us a letter here at our fancy new offices at Bon Appetit, One World Trade Center, New York, New York, 1007. All right. Thanks for stopping in, Julia. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm now joined by restaurant and drinks editor Andrew Knowlton and by one of Bon Appetit's favorites, bartenders slash mixologist uh, Damon Bolte. Um, for years, Damon, you've been at Prime Meats in Brooklyn. You're set to open a new joint, Grand Army, very soon. Uh, and you even have your own radio show, The Speakeasy, over at Heritage Radio over at Roberta's in Brooklyn. I'm a very busy person. Sounds like it. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much. All right. In the previous segment, we were talking about how in these miserable months of February and March, you're hunkered down in the house, you're cooking beautiful stewed meats and casseroles and stuff. But every now and then, you got to go out for a drink, right, Damon? That's true. In this day and age, um, I don't know, is it me or is going out for a drink a little bit more complicated than it used to be? Knowlton, I mean... Yeah, it's a lot more complicated. I mean, it became a pain in the butt, like the past four or five years in Manhattan to like figure out how to get into half these bars that you wanted to go drink at. I think, thankfully, now it's gotten a lot easier because you can get a good cocktail pretty much anywhere. So everyone knows how to make a decent Manhattan or a martini, hopefully. Well, hopefully by this point. Hopefully by this point. We've gone through that kind of rough speakeasy, like, you know, you're first born at the door, and there's only <laughs> six seats, and there's 35 ingredients in the cocktail. Now it's okay to get a whiskey soda. I think what we've gotten away from is the courtesy of actually being hospitable in finer drinking establishment. You yeah. being the the bartenders of the world. Sure. Yeah. You know, we kind of did overcomplicate things there for a while. And not just as far as the cocktails and sometimes minimal food and just getting in in the first place. Right. And it's not, it's not hospitality. You yeah. know? It's not welcoming. We're getting back to a point where it's more of an open conversation about actual customer service and hospitality and building that neighborhood vibe and making those drinks that are it's all classic cocktails. Right. You know, like you said before, like a martini in Manhattan. That's someone that everyone should be able to make at home. And if you can make it at home, you should have the most top-notch version of that out of the bar. Right. I think we had this big cocktail renaissance the last decade plus, mm-hmm. um, which I think was great in terms of introducing quality to what sure. you can get at a bar. But it also involved a lot of highfalutin this and a lot of wait time and a lot, you know, and, and what is that fine line between annoyance and great product and how do you as a bartender do you balance that we've seen the same thing happen in the culinary world a few times now where you can go through the the fine dining restaurants and then all of a sudden uh, now everyone's talking about food trucks you know and then you know it constantly goes back and forth i think this first renaissance of cocktails you know over the last 200 years has really been important for us to establish that hey outside of just popping bottles and pouring shots, here's all of what we can do with drinks. And now that the world's kind of come up to speed with it, now we can kind of relax and enjoy those singular spirits or those simpler cocktails. We couldn't be back at this point to where it's such an even respect for the craft unless we went through a lot of that bullshit. Can I say bullshit? Yeah, you can say it. <laughs> well, I think there's there's always going to be that ebb and flow, taking it to the max and reining it in. And, and I think what has been awesome about this whole mixology revolution of the last 10, 15 years is just that premium on quality ingredients. You know, it's like, all right, you, you want 
grapefruit juice, we're going to give you fresh squeezed grapefruit juice. And the yeah. difference between fresh squeezed grapefruit juice and the stuff out of a can or bottle is night and day. Good ice compared to, we could do a whole podcast just on ice. Yeah, yeah sure. The point is, like, 10 years ago, you could not get as good as drinks as you, and you now you can get great drinks no yes. matter where you are in the United States. And I think that trickles down into shaking up a cocktail or stirring a cocktail at home now because you have access to all the liquors and spirits that maybe you didn't, you know, 10 well, years Well, there's much ago. more information. The information is insane, you know, especially with publications like Bon Appetit. Um, Thank you, Damon. The best radio show in the world, the Speakeasy on Heritage <laughs> Radio Network. Um, there are so many websites and different mediums of information that we have out there to where you can find or at least learn how to make these ingredients. I remember a turning point. There's an industry magazine called Imbibe. It's all about drinks. And it was about six or seven years ago, a certain important change where it was, you know, like all these people who were like the top of the game, but it was always like coastal. Um, it was Portland, San Francisco, and New York. And then with one issue, it went from this one kid in St. Louis and someone in Topeka and someone in Albuquerque. And it was everyone that was kind of landlocked in the middle of the country that didn't have the same access of distribution of things like creme de violette from Hal's Alpins, these like obscure liqueurs, but they were going out and figuring out how to make them on their own so they could make classic cocktails like the aviation or, you know, even making their own grenadine rather than buying the roses stuff so they could actually make a legit Jack Rose. Yeah. It's simple drinks. All right. I moved to New York 20 years ago. And at a lot of the bars before the whole cocktail revolution happened, uh, there was such a thing called uh, the buyback. And your third mm -hmm. or fourth drink was almost by rule, free. If you're on the East Village somewhere, at Cherry Tavern or wherever. That's because they basically didn't have to pay much for <laughs> I, I guess, but that, you kind of almost don't see the buyback anymore. Well, well, is that, is that an industry-wide thing? You do if you're, I mean, I think being a regular at a few spots. Um, it, it does happen. It happens. And not as much as it used to. Not as much as it used to, but also a buyback is one thing, but comping something is another thing. So... You got to realize we are running businesses here too. You know, we have to make sure that we're putting money in the register so we can I stay you're just open. Just trying to host a good time, you said. <laughs> well, you know, trying to multitask and do do it all. You know, is there a formal policy for taking care of someone? There's, it's it's case by case, but really, the way you want to do it from a business point of view is like I never go into a place and order things that I don't expect to pay for. Yeah. Like when I'm behind the bar and I have got like say you and Andrew you guys are all at the bar and you're having you know a few rounds and I'm like oh you know what I got this whiskey you probably haven't tried so this is a two parter first of all I'm buying you a drink but I'm also turning you on to something that you have probably haven't had before and it's something that I feel special and that I want you to try so that makes the buyback even more important but as far as like taking something off the check. Like I've learned from so many people like Danny Meyer and folks like that, unless something's screwed up, yeah, you know, you never take stuff off, but you send more out. At, whether it's a restaurant or bars, one of the most important things you can do in your life is become a regular at a, a restaurant or a bar. I think it's important. I think yeah. it's an important social yeah. part of your life. Yeah, because, I mean, that's how we met. Yeah, exactly. And me, me drinking. Where at? Yeah. At Prime Meats? Prime, Prime Meats, yeah. It's important for you to be a regular, but it's also important for me to have you as a regular because, you know, I'm friends with your family. Right. I've seen your daughters grow up, and I and like we've had all kinds of great conversations. It's good business for, yeah. the, for the establishment, you know? Totally. You want to cultivate regulars. All right, left field question. When was the last time you made someone a Long Island iced tea? About a week ago. And how, how did it turn out? It was great. I probably have not made one in 20-some years. What, what goes into yours? Um, well, it's pretty much one of those kitchen sink kind of drinks, but uh, it's classically, it's 
vodka, tequila, gin, and white rum. So all white spirits. Equal parts? Um, yeah. And then I, I do it equal parts. But I've got this whole thing about equal parts drinks, uh, which we <laughs> might, might have to do a whole other show with. Um, and uh, triple, triple sec, Coca-Cola, and sour mix, which mm. you can make whatever. You, I mean, I just do. What's your sour mix? Equal parts, lemon, and simple syrup, which is. Simple syrup is equal parts. Boom. Right. We're about to get into some really weird, like, I think we're going to break through on to the other side, man. Um, and then, like, a little splash of seltzer just to lighten up. And when I, when I do, <laughs> just to lighten up. Yeah, just yeah. to lighten up. Because it's also, you know, there's, there's five light spirits. And then, oh, just lighten it up a little bit more. But I, I have a regular who comes in, and she... Not me. Not yeah. me. Just I'm not, not that regular. It's not Andrew. <laughs> I usually make her, like, cool classic cocktails. But then she'll all of a sudden out of left field, just like you did. Um, can I get a long island tea, Damon? And I'm like, you know what? Yeah, of course. If that's what you like to drink, I'm not here to judge you on that. But you're going to make her a really good one. Yeah. How how many Long Island iced teas is she drinking? That's the question. I, well, I can't comment on that. <laughs> but <laughs> if somebody orders a drink and I have the ingredients to make it, I'm going to make it. I get. I'm kind of particular as a customer. Um, no way. Yeah. <laughs> what, in terms of crossing the line, in terms of customers either asking you or telling you what they want and how they want it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because I know I have thoughts and I'm just curious. I've written many articles about the, the martini and how you should order it. It's like really the only cocktail that you should throw modifiers out there with. Mm-hmm. First of all, whether it's gin or vodka, I can't tell you how many times I get martini orders. I go straight for gin. Yeah. Then, you know, if you have a brand, if you see the brand, you know, call for that. Tell them if you want it dry or if you want it, like, regular. Uh, you know, can, How specific can we get between, quote-unquote, dry and regular, you know, in terms of how much vermouth to add? Yeah. I would suggest that anyone figure out how they like their martinis by making them at home yourself. And then you have... The exact recipe whenever you go out to a bar and you can order it that way. Always ask for it dirty if you want it dirty because otherwise it's going to be clean. No one's just going to throw dirt in there. And what about stirred shaken? I mean, stirred is preferred? Stirred is preferred. That's the original. There's a lot of bad habits that we kind of adopted over Prohibition and the, the 40s and 50s. We think about the 20th century, like as far as cocktails go, and we did have some fun things invented and some trends and stuff like that. But for the most part, as far as like real classic cocktails, it was not a good century for us. <laughs> it's not a good century. <laughs> it, for a lot of bad habits. On our way out, three drinks that people can and should make at home. What are they? How do you do them? Quick. So... Uh, Negroni, for sure. Which is? Negroni is equal parts gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. It's stirred, Manhattan. You've already got the sweet vermouth because you're making the uh, the Negroni. Put a couple of ounces of, of rye whiskey, bourbon if you'd like. It's going to be a little bit sweeter. Two to one with sweet vermouth. There's so many good vermouths out there, by the way, so don't skimp on that since you are, you've already got two drinks at home that you're making with it, so yep. might as well have some good stuff. And the classic Angostura bitters. I'd like to do... A couple of dashes of Angostura bitters, and then something like Fee Brothers Whiskey Barrel Age bitters, just to give it a little extra spice. You can find all kinds of great cherries. I make sure that I have fresh citrus at home so I can do twists and peels. And you know what? I was about to say the whiskey sour, since you got whiskey and you've already got those lemons for making peels, but champagne cocktail. You should Ooh, always have nice. champagne at home just in case. I had a customer come in one time when I was working at a little retail shop. Guy comes in and he's buying two bottles of champagne and like good stuff. And so I asked him, I'm like, hey man, what's what's the occasion? He's like, last night was the occasion. I'm just restocking. <laughs> and I was that, like, that is baller. That is total baller. So uh, yeah, a classic champagne cocktail is super elegant, super easy to make. Everyone should know how to do it. You've already got those Angostura bitters from making the Manhattan. Yep. 
sugar cube, a few dashes of bitters. On the sugar uh, cube on the itself sugar at the cube. bottom of the glass. In, in, a, in a champagne flute or a wine glass or a cocktail coupe, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Except for the wider the glass, the quicker the bubbles are going to die out. I like to do, you know, just soak that sugar cube in the bottom of the glass and then pour it to the top. Put a nice lemon twist on it since you've got that at home, right? And then do you're you good need, to go. Do you need to muddle the sugar at all or just no, let the No, actually the you don't want to. Dissolve? The reason that that works is... You take take anything that's carbonated or fizzy, and you take regular like granulated sugar, put it in the glass, and pour in the bubbly and see what happens. It's just going to explode. So what happens is since you've got a compacted sugar cube or like chunk of sugar, it stays compact. And it almost acts as like a wick for the bitters. So you'll see when you pour the, the champagne in, you'll see bubbles shooting off of the sugar cube, and it's actually pulling the, the bitters and the sugar off the cube and mixing it. And it's a really beautiful thing to behold. And it's an elegant drink, super easy to make, it's celebratory, it's comforting, and again, you should always have champagne in your refrigerator. All right, well, next time you bring in some. All right, Damon Bolte, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Good luck with Grand thank Army, you. your new establishment. Knowlton, as always, it's a pleasure. I'll be there at Grand Army. All right, and thank you for listening to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Bon Appetit Foodcast is recorded to a digital device in the small conference room on the 36th floor of One World Trade Center in New York City. Our engineer is Mitra Kaboli, with production assistance from Bill Cushing and Kerry Polis, and is produced by Scott DeSimon. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or at bonappetit.com. Bon